What I want to do tonight is give you a short history of Jewish humor. And I'm sure every guy and every woman in this room is an expert. They know everything about it. So I'll take my life in my hands and uh, tell you about it. And it's a really interesting question. The only two things you really have to know for the exam, okay, at the end. We're going to have a little pop quiz. The two things you have to know is one is how many people have ever heard the definition of Jewish humor as laughter through tears? How many heard it just now? Just checking, because other people have fallen asleep. Uh, you know, but if you accept the laughter through tears def definition of Jewish humor, what you are accepting is a, an attitude towards Jewish life that the great historian Salo Baron, used to be at Columbia University many years ago, called the lacrimose theory of Jewish history, the tearful saga of the Jews. You know how it goes. You know, we suffered, and then we suffered, and then we suffered. And then we moved. <laughs> and then we suffered. And then we suffered. And we moved. Right? With that kind of explanation of Judaism, you have to be a kamikaze to want to be a Jew. You know, right? It really overlooks the fact that we have a tremendous amount of creativity. And Jewish humor, while indeed is not escapist, and we'll talk about it and give you some examples of it, it but it doesn't really reflect this laughter through tears de de definition, which ultimately is a very self-deprecating, right? That in order to be funny, you've got to suffer. You know, if you've got to be funny and suffer, I'd rather be an Episcopalian. I don't need it. <laughs> You know, you'd be a little less funny, but they don't, you know, persecute you. So, so that's the first thing you should know. Jewish humor is not only laughter through tears, even though it sounds so schmaltzy and so good, makes us feel wonderful. Oh, we suffered and we were funny. You know, who needs it? <laughs> Oi. The second thing, and this is very more dangerous, and I don't know if it's true for your generation, it was true for mine. There was a lot of uh, problems when anybody made any self-critical remark about the Jewish community. And you may have that here today as well. Right? So if you were doing a joke about the Jewish community, you were often seen as somebody who was self-hating. Right? And it was, that was very clear. People, you know, there were all kinds of people making material about the Jewish community. It was considered self-hating. Philip Roth was a good example. I don't know if you remember Philip Roth at all, but much before many of you were born, he wrote a book called Portnoy's Complaint. Right? Have you seen the book? You should definitely read that book. Still a, still a, still a dirty book, even now. With, even, with, even with everything that's happened, it's still Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem, it's a great dirty book. And um, the book came out in 1968, and it was a big furor, furor about the book. How could he say those things about his mother and about Jews, this and that? So the Jewish community very brilliantly punished him in a brilliant way. They made him a millionaire. Because whether you liked the book or not, everybody bought it and read it, you know, etc. But what, he, what, he, what, what was problematic with that is that it's important for us to really accept the fact that our community has as much stupidity as any other community. We have a right for that. <laughs> right, right. We have a right for that. We have a right to admit that we don't do things very well, and all too often, because we don't have a communal sense of humor, we wind up building another shul. <laughs> very expensive. I'd rather give somebody some comedy, you know, therapy than build a $14, a $14 million building across the road. So this is one of the things I, I have to say to you, that you should be careful about assigning the self-hate label to a comedian or someone who makes something critical, because I think that's the real power of Jewish humor. It is part of the intellectual critical tradition that we have. And since we have stuff that's worthy to be made fun of, the difference is examine the singer and not the song. 
So as Dick Gregory once says, Dick Gregory, a name from the past, some of you remember Dick Gregory, uh, early civil rights uh, a, a black comedian, uh, he, he, he was old enough to be a Negro comedian. Shows you how old he was, right? And he says, you know, when, I, when, I, uh, when I'm sitting in a car down in uh, Mississippi and a uh, state trooper comes up to the car and says, hey, nigger, what are you doing here? I get upset. My wife wakes me up and whispers in my ear, hey, sweet little nigger, I love you. I feel less upset. So it matters who's telling the joke, right? So you have a joke being told clearly to give you a shtoch. Now, I've got to tell you about a shtoch. Shtoch is a Yiddish term. It means a jab, right? And shtoch humor is very important. I'll tell you about shtoch humor. There's a lot of technical stuff tonight. The, shtoch, the opposite of shtoch is a chap, right? Got it? That's a grab. Got it? Let's practice. Ready? Shtoch, chap. Right? Shtoch, chap. Sounds like a Chinese law, law, law firm right here. Chinese law firm right down in Newport Beach. I saw him, Stoch and Chap. So to give you a Stoch is, is really an important factor in Jewish humor. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the history of it. But the most important thing to remember is that humor generally, and Jewish humor in particular, has an important social function and role to play. And that social function is, is to deflate egotism. A Jewish humor never comes from the top down. It's always from the bottom up. And you can make fun of everything, everything in Jewish humor. Nothing is sacred. And when you meet someone who's a little bit, let us say, say in Yiddish, ufgeblusen, <laughs> and you know what that means, you even not know Yiddish, somebody who thinks very much of himself, right? Has his head filled, right? A good stock can deflate him. And the pomposity is punctured, if you use that term. Great title for a book, The Pomposity of Punctured, whatever. Or, or, or a rock group, you can call it today. My friends, the, 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 the power of humor is such that you can get away with saying things you might not be able to get away with. And second, the power is that ultimately humor tries to reveal those little truths with a small t that hide behind everyday life, right? And that's why we enjoy people like Seinfeld and others, because they really reveal some things that are there all the time, but we don't really pay attention to them until it is brought to our attention. So in a sense, there's a certain level, I don't want to go too far on this, but a certain level of spirituality in humor. Because humor wants to get you to see things that are maybe not available to you if you don't see the joke, you don't get the joke, etc. Or you don't have that kind of observational plane. So where did this all come from? Where did it all come from? Are the Jews inherently funny? Right? Is there anything funny in the Torah? Anything? Not much, right? Not much, you know? I mean, you got a couple of funny things like, you know, the flood. <laughs> the flood's kind of funny, you know, because, you know, there's Moses telling Noah to build this ark, right? And he gives him all the, yeah, this and this and that. It's going to be this big, that big. And bring all the animals and bring his husband, the wife and the kids and this and that. And there's no description of sanitation facilities. <laughs> you can imagine by the third week what's going on in that boat, right? Oh, God, the slipping and sliding alone. It's unbelievable. But... Whatever. There are a couple other funny moments. Anybody? The plagues. The plagues. Hilarious. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, the plagues are hilarious. Think, think, think about this. I mean, think about this for a minute. Here you have the creator of the entire universe, and he's giving the Egyptians frogs. Come on. Give me a break. You want to zap the Egyptians, you know, atomic radiation. Give them something big, you know? Frogs. And by the way, what's with frogs? I mean, if you're living in the Nile Delta, you sort of expect frogs. I mean, it's no big deal, you know? So the rabbis, too, were very, the rabbis were really interested in this as a question. They said, why would frogs be a plague if you live in the Nile Delta? So they saw that the word used 
And you remember the Passover? Everybody remember Passover? Did it happen here? You had Passover here? Okay, just checking. <laughs> you never know. It's California. I don't know. This year you don't do Passover. Next year you don't do right. So you take a drop out of, of right? You say, Dam, blood, right? And the second drop, you say, Tzvardea. Now, anybody knows Hebrew, Tzvardea is a singular and not a plural. So the rabbi said, well, that must have been the plague. God sent one big frog. <laughs> right? It's like the early Godzilla. You know, all the Egyptians speaking in subtitles. You know, you know um, really, if a frog sits in your house, you've you got problems. You've got problems. What other funny things in the Bible? There's one great punchline early on. Moses, you know, a great straight man for God, Moses. He uh, takes the people out of Egypt, right? And they come up to the Red Sea, and they're afraid, and what's going to happen? And the Egyptian troops are coming after them, and they do this. It's not a ha-ha, so I want to warn you here. But, it's a, but it is a really borscht belt kind of, of line. They say, well, Moses, there weren't enough graves in Egypt. Do we have to die here? I think that's a good borscht belt line, right? It's this real kvetchy kind of humor that a lot of us really know. So besides that, to be very honest, there's not much fun stuff in the Bible. Really not much. Matter of fact, when I was in Yeshiva, we studied the five books of Moses, then we immediately skipped to the Talmud. We skipped the rest of it, because the Protestants did a much better job with it, and they know that stuff. I mean, they really, they care about the prophets and all that stuff, and yelling and screaming and hargening and all kind of stuff. They love it. For them, it's a precursor of how they can really take over the world, but shh, don't say anything. They don't know they're taking over the world. So what, however, this would have been fine, except one little itty bitty 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 book snuck into the Hebrew Bible after a great deal of controversy, and that was the book called the Scroll of Esther. Anybody hear that? Yeah. Ah, Esther, what a what a book! And because of Esther, we have a holiday. What's the holiday called? Purim. And we'll talk about Purim for a minute because Purim is probably the most important ingredient for keeping Jewish humor alive. We'll talk why in a, in a moment or two. But let's get back to the book. Let's imagine you were the first audience to re read the Megillah, or have the Megillah read. If the minute you heard the names Mordechai and Esther, you would break out laughing and roll on the floor. Why? Because they're not, they're not Hebrew. That's right. They are a parody of Astarte and Marduk, the two great gods of the Persian Empire. And imagine the hubris, that's the Greek word for chutzpah. Imagine, right, the hubris of an author to make fun of the gods of the Persian court. That's very scintillating, very exciting. And of course, the king of Persia is portrayed as what? That's sort of a, you know, an idiot, to be honest. basically an idiot, a drunk, drunken idiot. And uh, the villain is played as a certain as the arch villain, and he gets his best, etc. It's a very well-plotted story that has been repeated since that time, timeless, timeless times again. We see it in art. When I grew up, it was Dudley Do-Do-Do-Right and Snidely Whiplash. I don't know if you remember him. <laughs> right? He was the Haim Haman, right? And he would tie poor Esther Nell to the tracks, you know, and, and then Mordecai would come to the rescue. It was very, very much that. Uh, I don't know if he had that in mind when he did that, but uh, people who don't know what I'm talking about, you're, you're much too young to be here. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, so the Purim story became a story that immediately took on and became very, very successful. And it opened up a, a, a very sort of an important way of doing Jewish humor that has lasted until this very day. And that is the art of parody. P-A-R-O-D-Y. Right? For those of you in the, in the stock world, it's not P-A-R-I-T-Y. Okay? But it's parody. The idea of taking the text 
and this is very much a Jewish intellectual pursuit, is you take the text and you turn it over, and you turn it over, right? You turn it over, and that's what Purim is all about, right? Turning things over, turning things on their head, and by doing so, you basically deconstruct the text. Now, those of you who are familiar with deconstructionism, I don't know if, if you are, it's the a, it's a, it's a belief that, that the text really has the capacity of yielding many different interpretations, that the text is pliable, and that a text never really finishes being a text until you absorb it. And the way you absorb it might be different than the way you absorb it. So that leads to a problem because you can't have any absolutes. You have to be open to the fact that there are different perspectives all the time. And that's very hard for people who are very much bound to one perspective to accept because they want to see a standard and they want people to adhere to the standard. But that's what the Purim idea is, that you're supposed to get into a place at least once a year, if not more more often, I try to do it much more often, of being so freshnushkit, so drunk, freshnushkit is a technical term, freshnushkit, that you don't know the difference between blessing Mordechai and cursing Haman. Right? So what does that mean? You should lose all perspective on good and evil? No, it basically means you have to get to a place where you realize that good and evil are blurry. Right? When we left Eden, you remember that? It was a Wednesday. I, was, I, saw, I saw you there. <laughs> right? Remember that bus we were waiting for? It took an hour and a half to get there. We left Eden... Once we left Eden, we left the Garden of Eden, we came into a place where good and evil are blurry. Eden, it was easy. Don't eat from that tree. Bad tree, good tree, good tree, bad tree. Tarzan, Jaden, God, Adam. You know, it, was, it was simple. That's what Eden means. Eden means in a place where things are delineated in a way that you can accept them, that you know how to live without a life of fear or apprehension. Because you know what's good, everything good has a smiley face, everything bad has a skull and crossbones. But once you get out of Eden, things are blurry. So what Purim did was give an opportunity for us to examine our own selves in a new light. And Purim did it by festival, by carnival. Let me go back and explain how Purim came to be. You may be familiar, uh, how many took Greek mythology in school? Not as many as you used to be, right? There used to be a time everybody did it. There was a wonderful god that all of us loved called Bacchus. Everybody knows about Bacchus, but nobody knows about Greek mythology, right? right. Bacchus was the god of, how should I say? Yes, uh, how should I say? A little bit of, uh, he was a party guy. He was definitely a party guy. And he had, they went to festivals honoring Bacchus, and they were called Bacchanalia. Bacchanalia. And at these things you would be, there were usually these festivals of Bacchanalia were in the spring, right? Between seasons. And it was meant to reinvigorate you through an excessive imbibing of the grape. And what happened after that? Well, a lot happened after that, but we won't get into that right now. But the idea was that there was this need after winter to break out of the rigidity of winter into the flow of summer. And because it's between things, I'll use a technical term for a moment, it's, it's a liminal experience, Lim, liminality. It's not totally here and it's not totally there. It's an in-between time. And that bacchanalia led to carnival, right? Carnival. Carnival in the Christian tradition ends at Mardi Gras, right? Fat Tuesday, right? In the I Irish tradition ends St. Patrick's Day. It's always in the same season. And for us, it ends with Purim. Okay, so what is the idea of these ha -ha holidays? These holidays are liberation feasts of the, if you will, the spirit. And the way you, are, you do it is through masquerade. Masquerade. 
Why is masquerade a wonderful way to do it? Because there was a famous philosopher in, in Russia named Bakhtin, and he said that the reason Carnival was so dangerous at the time is because in Carnival, people would wear costumes. So we associate in our normal life authority vis-a-vis -vis what people wear. A policeman wears a police uniform, and we have a certain kind of either respect or trepidation when we're going 90 on the road. All right? A king wears a crown, wears a robe. But on Carnival, everybody wears a robe. Everybody can wear a crown. So basic authority is undermined by that fact. Because if indeed it is what we wear that makes us, Purim says, no, it's not at all. Anybody can be king. Anybody can be an authority figure. And that's dangerous. And the way you deal with that is you try to stop it as soon as you can. And the way the Christians did it was Mardi Gras leads to Lent. Right? Exactly. Lent, right? And for Jews, day after Purim, Pesach. Right? The slavery of the Jewish people. Yeah, Jewish women saying, oh, God, when is this going to end? You know, and then they finally go home from the second Seder, and you hear Jewish women all over the world going, free, free at last, we've seen the promised land. Right? So there was a fear of festivities of this, of this kind, and Purim was really a wonderful example of it because the Purim players and the Purim costumes really created an air of frivolity that's very necessary. By the way, the wearing of masks is very interesting. What are masks there for? Why would you wear a mask? Right? But, the, but rather than hiding, you see, everybody says, I wear a mask to hide. Right. And I can tell by costumes people pick what, who they really are. <laughs> always that guy who shows up in the, you know, you know what I mean. There's always a guy like that. There's always one guy like that. If not, not two. I don't know. I don't know about your congregation. We've got a couple of them. But... So the idea is that masquerade is ultimately a place of revelation. Revelation. I'm getting somewhere. You'll see in a moment. So if revels can lead to revelation. Interesting, right? I don't think there's any connection with the words, by the way. Revels lead to revelation. Now, a week from Tuesday, there's going to be Shavuos. Shavuot. One of the most undersung holidays in the Jewish world. Why? It's too easy. You got to eat cheese, cheesecake <laughs> or a blintz. It's, that's the only thing you do. You study a little Torah. It's very good. You show up early. It's nice. But there's no big preparation, and it only lasts one day in Israel and two, two days here. So for 24 hours, you don't get over bothered by it. You know? It's got to be at least seven days to get bothered by it. So why am I bringing that up? Shavuos, according to our tradition, is the celebration of the giving of the Torah, the giving of the Torah at Sinai. It's called Matan Torah, the giving of it. I'm saying this a lot, giving of the Torah, giving of the Torah. Why? Because it's not the holiday of receiving the Torah. Think about it. The holiday of the Torah is given. So one of the Midrashim, many of the rabbinic interpretations of the story, says at one time during the event, the people were certain, certainly a bit trepidatious about all this, the strange, abstract, invisible God who shows up at a mountain like a volcano and smoke and fire, so what did he say? This rabbi of the Midrash says, at one point God lifted Sinai over their heads. He took the mountain and made it like a roof over their heads. And God, in his inimitable sense of humor, said, Jews, you'll accept the Torah? Otherwise, this will be your grave. Boom, I'll drop it on you. So the Jews say, yeah, yeah, I'll accept it, accept it. 
What are you going to say? The guy's a mountain over your head. Right? Now, according to our tradition and many other traditions, as you know, it is impossible to be involved in a contract under duress. Right? You can't be, right? You can't do it. So the rabbis always said that the giving and the receiving of the Torah on Sinai was always under duress. So the question becomes, at what time did we accept the Torah? According to our tradition, the Torah was accepted on Purim. Purim. In the, most, in the only book in the entire Torah, entire Tanakh, that doesn't mention God's name. Because it had to be accepted by the people. It says, Kimu v'kiblu kfar. Next to the last chapter, after they've defeated Haman and his forces, right, Queen Esther sends out this very famous epistle to all the people that from now on you should celebrate this day and this day. And the people accepted it and observed it. So the rabbi said it took Purim for the process of revelation to finally be completed because the people accepted it not because of God. Not because of some supernatural events, not because of lightning and fire and Spielbergian you know, special effects. They accepted it because they saw themselves as taking responsibility for their own lives. And the Talmud goes even further and believes that the place of God in our life should be where God is and not really here. We have to decide. And you all know the famous story, of course, of the rabbis coming together and telling this fellow, you know, that oven you have, it's not kosher for Passover. He says, what are you talking about? It's kosher for Passover. He says, no, no, it's not kosher for Passover. And he says, you know what he says? I'll prove it's kosher for Passover. If this oven is kosher for Passover, I want that tree to jump from there to there. There goes a tree. The rabbis are not impressed. No, 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 it's not kosher for Passover. If it's not kosher, I'm going to have this stream change its direction and go from downstream to upstream. It happens. I said, no, no, not good enough. It goes on and on with all these kinds of tricks. And finally, he says, if this oven is not kosher, I'll hear from God himself. And a voice comes down from heaven saying, it's kosher. And the rabbis say, no, not good, good enough. <laughs> and they make a very classic line. They say, Torah, lo shamayim. He, the Torah is not in heaven. It's here, in the now. And the Midrash continues with a very famous line, and God laughs and says, my children have defeated me in the most positive way possible, the way we hope our children will defeat us. And they'll take responsibility for themselves and not depend upon us. That's really the, the defeat. So he chuckled God, according to that tradition. So this idea that somehow Purim represents that. It's the only book without God's name in it. It's a book that talks about politics. It talks about, by the way, it's, it's the closest book to who we are. There's no other book as close to who we are. These are diaspora Jews who don't talk about God, <laughs> very much like us, right? They are politically savvy, right? You have this Mordechai, sort of the Henry Kissinger of his time, you know, advising the king, right? And you have the idea of power politics and the fact that you have to play hardball. And it's very much like who we are. Excuse me? And don't forget the sex. Okay, I won't forget it. When's it going to happen? Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget the sex. Okay, it sounds... Uh, yes, the sex was there too, right? But that's how you un un understand the scepter. I won't get involved in that, <laughs> with that. Even though there are many Victorian porn no novels based on, uh, on Queen... <laughs> only for research did I read those. I only, for, only for research for this, for this particular lecture. I read it, Mike. 
Right, uh, yes, Raising the Success Epter, I think it's called. Uh, right. No, really, there are a lot of stories based on the story of Esther that deal with that. So, so Purim comes along and it really creates a possibility for, if you will, a burst of this bacchanalian spirit, this, this need for, if you will, expressiveness, the need for expansiveness away from the sun, winter and its rigidity and its cold. And then, of course, immediately we protect it by creating this Apollonian, if you will, order, the Seder, the Passover. There's probably no holiday that's more Apollonian with rules and more rules and more rules. And it brings you back into a place where you're no longer dangerous. Because being on the edge, liminal, is always dangerous. Now Purim also gives us another wonderful thing, and that is they give us a character who is the antecedent of the stand-up comedian. I know you've often asked, are Jews in stand-ups? Yes, many Jews are. And this is a fellow called a Batchen. B-A-D-A-N, for those of you who are taking notes. <laughs> right. A Batchen means a jester. It comes from the Hebrew word bidicha. A joke, right? A jester. And uh, some parts of Europe is called a marshalik, a marshal, the MC. And his job at Purim, as well as at another event, which I'll t- talk about in a minute, was to, was to get the crowd into a joyful mood. And he did it by, by poetry, by songs, by antics, etc., by one-liners. He also sang in tune called Gramin. And these batchanim were very popular. They're very popular. They'd be backed by a sort of a, uh, an early kind of klezmer band that was Eastern Europe, right? But these were marginalized people. And that led to the idea that in order to be basically funny, you have to be sort of marginal. We'll talk about that, about American Jewish humor, about where our marginality originally gave us a lot of uh, a leg up, if you will, in, 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 a, in the uh, transfer to the United States. So this batchan became... Not only popular at Purim, and that he would have groupies, batchen groupies, and they'd follow him from prayer, but he also got popular at another event, which is the most important event in the life of the Jewish community. What is it? When the Federation calls on Super Sunday, right? That's for, I know you're always, you're always waiting for that call. I know you. Because I, I was a very lonely guy, and he's very pleased that anybody calls him. But no, uh, it's not Super Sunday. It's a wedding. Believe it or not, Jewish weddings were important, and they... People used to actually get married once, believe it or not. I know it's hard to believe. And weddings were not like today. They were not affairs in a hotel for an afternoon. They were one week long. One week long. For a number of reasons. One, uh, travel was very hard in those days. You didn't go from one town to another town. 40 miles may have taken a few days. Whatever it was, you're there already, you stay there. Second of all, there is this thing I don't know if you're familiar with called Sheva Brachot the seven blessings. I'm sure many of you are. But the reason uh, that the wedding was a week long is because after the bride and groom would consummate the wedding, they would no longer be allowed to sleep with each other. For, well, until, right, until the time came to do, to do it again. But le- at least a week. At, le- at least a week. So you have to keep these people kind of occupied. <laughs> Especially the guy. He's like crawling up the wall at this point, right? So it helps keeping them drunk and happy, basically, for a while, and et cetera. So at this event, where you have seven-day party, think about a seven-day party. Party! Party! Right? The kegs are flowing. Everybody's having a great time. And this Botkin character is appointed, again, to be the MC to keep the entertainment flowing. Because you'd imagine the amount of seven days. Can you imagine seven-day weddings? You know, just standing online with the, uh, with the b- buffet would take about a day and a half. <laughs> You know, the soup or the fourth day, whatever. So this Botson's job was to keep everybody happy. 
by telling jokes, and he used a lot of the techniques that later became the techniques that we know from the Borscht Belt. He would interact with the audience. He would make jokes about them. He would insult them. Very important, because if you're not worthy of being insulted, you're very insulted. <laughs> you know, what, what, what am I, chopped liver? Insult me too, right? That was the kind of thing, right? So this Batman became, as I say, very popular, very, and we have, unfortunately, we have, have no videotapes, so it's very hard to know what they did. <laughs> But we do know that they lasted from the 14th century, 15th century, until right now. Because right now in the Hasidic community, there are batchanim, at weddings, and in Purim. Right now, this very, very, very day. So I'll take a bit of a jump. We're now in the 15th century. Let's take a jump. Let me see where should we go from the 15th century. Ah, perfect. Let's go to the end of the 18th. And there's a movement coming up called the Hasidic movement. You heard of them, right? Hasidim. I see them. You see them? I see them. Right? I see them. You see them. Okay? And this Hasidic movement began as a populist movement that did something extraordinary. It was able to galvanize followers, not by learned disquisitions on the law. On the contrary, they saw these learned disquisitions as something that was pushing people away, but they did it through telling stories. The Rebbe or the rabbi, the guru, Rebbe and guru is probably the best way to see it, Rebbe and guru, somebody who's not only in, interested in whether a chicken is kosher, he's interested on how you're doing existentially. Understand? That was when you went to the Rebbe because you had something going on in your heart, something going on in your family, your soul, and the Rebbe advised you. So these Rebbes became popular because the ones who told better stories, sung better songs, did better dances, would get a big, bigger crowd. And they were equivalent to what we would say were the evangelicals. With the big tents, and they had a couple of folk singers in there right, singing in, and the people come into the tent and have a good time, and have a real good time, and they accept the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. It's a real sweet thing. And the same thing happened, that they would bring people together, and people would get excited, and they you lose a little brandy here in a while, it didn't hurt, right? And they became quite successful, and there were many other kinds of Jews. Believe it or not, we have Jews that don't agree with each other. I know it's hard to believe. But there are other Jews who were at this time exposed to the Western Enlightenment. They're called Maskilim, right? The enlightened ones. How do you keep the boy back in the shtetl after you've seen Berlin, you know? And they saw these Hasidim as obscurantists, people who were denying the reality of life and the reality of modernity and wanted to keep their old ways and were against secular education and this and that. So they began to try to battle these Hasidim for the hearts and minds of the young people by writing the first Jewish joke books. Parodies of Hasidic stories. Let me give you one a, a, a contemporary one. By the way, you know, you all know the big book of Jewish humor, right? Yeah. You don't? If you don't know it, you're lost. It's a large book and it's well priced, so it's really worth it. <laughs> Let me give you an example of a contemporary a Hasidic par parody. This is by somebody you may have heard, heard of. Um, his name is, let me see what his name is. It's a really big book for that price, really. It's amazing. Uh, here it is. This is a new one. With, well, this is the 25th anniversary edition. We've added 100 jokes to this, to this book. So here it is. Hold on. I'll get it for you one second. I have to, so many marked to read. Okay, this is the one. Yes. This is by a contemporary uh, comedian you may, may have heard of, 
uh, Woody Allen. Everybody hear Woody Allen? Yeah, yeah. Some people find his humor, right, give or take. Some people love it, don't love it. I have the light like it most of the time, but I wouldn't have him ba- babysit for me. That's one thing I would have to do. <laughs> But I'm bummed. Thank you. This is a Hasidic parody, a double parody. It's the par- parody of the Hasidic story, and it's the parody of those people who tried to interpret Hasidic stories for the Western audience, most notably Martin Buber. Name strike a bell, any of you? Right? He wrote all the Buber mices. That's right. Remember him. <laughs> I know. It's late. I know. Here's the story, the parody of the Hasidic stories. There's a man who could not marry off his ugly daughter. Visited Rabbi Shimon of Krakow. My heart is heavy, he told the Rebbe, because God has given me an ugly daughter. How ugly, the seer asked. <laughs> well, if she were lying on a plate with a herring, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. <laughs> so the seer of Krakow thought for a long time, and he finally asked new um, Zugmir, what kind of herring? The man, taken aback by the query, uh, thought quickly, and he said, "Eh, Bismarck. Ah, Too bad, the rabbi said, if it were Machis, she'd have a much better chance. (laughs) And now the learned interpretation of the Western savant. Here is a tale that illustrates the tragedy of transient qualities such as beauty. Does the girl actually resemble a herring? Why not? Have you seen some of the things walking around these days, particularly at resort areas? (laughs) But even if she does, are not all creatures beautiful in God's eyes? Perhaps. But if a girl looks more at more at home in a jar of wine sauce than in the evening gown, she's got big problems. <laughs> Oddly enough, Rabbi Shimmel's own wife was said to resemble a squid. <laughs> this was only in the face. And she more than made up for it by her hacking cough. <laughs> the point of which escapes me. So these parodies really uh, worked, and they uh, brought a lot of people to, uh, to question their... Uh, whether they should belong. However, there were always some Hasidic who didn't know that they were parodies and would actually tell these stories again and again. I'll give you an example. Uh, how many of you have been to a wedding and ever heard the song? And the Rebbe Eli Melech is Gevorin Zayef Freilach is Gevorin Zayef Freilach Eli Melech. You know it? It's a Jewish old King Cole song. Right? That's what it is. And he took off his this, and he threw that, and he invites the pipers, and this, this Jewish old king call. But the song, is, uh, so it's, it's played like a Hasidic song. Oh, it's an old Hasidic song. But it's really a Hasidic parody song saying, Eli Melech was a yutz, and if you follow him, you're a yutz. Don't be a yutz, Eli Melech. <laughs> but that's often the case. Sometimes the parody becomes more acceptable than the, than the, than the authentic da document itself. So these, uh, the first joke books of 1810, 1820 are the first, if you will, evidence we have of written Jewish humor. Some of them included jokes that were being told at the time, and it's very helpful to us because, as I say, no video recordings, no tape recordings. So these books become very important for us for the study of Jewish humor. Time goes by. I'm going to take you now to the towards the end of the 19th century. We're, we're moving pretty good here, folks. We went for the beginning of time, and uh, we're in the middle of the 19th century. I think we're doing pretty, pretty well. But at, there was a time around 1860, let's say, okay? Take, a, take a, you know, a day day or two away from it. 1860, where we begin to see the rise of a new phenomena in uh, the Jewish world, and that's the newspaper. Newspapers. In Yiddish 
and in Hebrew. And these newspapers began to be disseminated now to a much larger audience who could afford them. They couldn't afford books necessarily. And we begin to see the rise of Yiddish short storytellers, particularly the most well-known and perhaps the, most, the funniest one, Sholem Aleichem. Name strike a bell with any of you? Right? Sholem Aleichem is a great name because what does it mean? Hi. <laughs> I wanted to change my name to Exit many years ago. <laughs> Had my name up in lights all through the world, you know, Moshe Exit. Hi, how are you? Or Moshe California. For a while I was thinking about Moshe California, but Moshe actually would have been better. Shalom Aleichem, whose name was Solomon Rabinovich, was a brilliant writer who wrote about the life of Eastern Europe. He was one of those enlightened Jews. He had gone and seen the West. He was not a Chassid. He was not an Orthodox Jew in any way. But one thing he did, did have was a tremendous ear. It was about that big. No, no, he had a, no. He had a tremendous ear for... <laughs> she said, really? That big? <laughs> very impressive, yes. So he had a very great ear for the everyday language of the people among which he lived. And he began to write stories about the little town of Kisrilovka. Kisrilovka, right? Which later became Anatevka and another story, right? Fiddler on the Roof, unfortunately, is what most people know, but it's one-tenth as funny uh, as what Shalom Aleichem wrote. And he would write about these people, and he called them, that what he, was, he, he, wrote, he called them, it was about Kleinmenschlichkeit, smallness of people, right? And the fights that go on in a little town, and, and, and the power struggles, and, and, and the husband and wives, and he made great characters. There was Menachem Mendel, and there was, there was Tev Tevye, of course, and there was uh, Muttel Paces, the Cantor's son, whatever. He wrote so well that people of every back background, whether they were religious or not religious or enlightened, all appreciated that he captured something about the folkstumlichkeit, the folklore of, of the people. And he was the kind of fellow who put himself in the stories, because all the stories began with meeting Shalom Aleichem on the train and saying, Mr. Shalom Aleichem, I want to tell you a story. So he was there to receive these stories, at least in character, and he became very popular, very, very popular, and he brought a certain kind of, if you will, parody, a certain kind of observation, a certain understanding about the human mind, and more importantly, he was doing it from within and not from without. He wasn't appointing his finger and saying, you stupid people, because that wouldn't have been funny. He was within that community saying, this is who we are. That's a very different approach, not being on the outside. Now, I really didn't appreciate Shalom Aleichem until I saw, I appreciate him always, but I saw a Seinfeld show. Everybody, everybody watch Seinfeld? I'm very from. I watch the morning and I watch the evening. I'm very, I'm very from. There's some reform ones, I only watch them once a week, and, and the conservative ones watch them every other day. It's a whole day. So... I don't know if it is, but I know where I am. It's on all, all, all the time. That and Law and Order, right? Law and Order, Seinfeld. Law and Order, Seinfeld. It's a good break. It's like a palate cleanser between the next multiple rape, you know? It's always good to have a little of a break, you know? So it was one show. I don't know if you remember the show. It was an hour-long show. It was a double. It was like two, two weeks with a to-be-continued show. Uh, and it really, it was amazing. It was a show called The Condo. Anybody remember The Condo Show? We don't have a lot, lot, lot of from Seinfeldians here. Okay, the basic plot was that Seinfeld buys his father a Cadillac. He makes some money. Remember this? So he's living in this gated community, Casa del Boca, the Boca, la Casa, whatever it is. The Boca Vista. So we have a from one here. Del Boca Vista. 
and, uh, the, and he's the president of the Condo Association. The word Jew, by the way, is never used in any of the show, because you don't have to use it, right? Right? And the, he's the head of the Condo Association. You'll help me, because you actually know the show. <laughs> but I travel with him. He comes with me wherever we go, so it's very helpful. He says, um, uh, uh, how could Seinfeld afford a Cadillac? He must have embezzled the money from the Condo Association. So they go after him, right? Then it goes on, the show goes on. But I realized that this was a Shalom Aleichem story. This is talking about the small, smallness of people in a shtetl. Maybe even a ghetto. You go to Florida, you meet these places, and they have these gates in front of your house, and these old guys in golf carts who are not going to protect you anyway. If it, <laughs> right? But whatever. But so it was, it was so interesting to me that they, here, here was a show that was being played in the 1980s in the United States, and it had that same feel. That, uh, that Shalom Aleichem had so many, many years and years ago. So Shalom Aleichem is still funny. I recommend him to you. Don't really, as I say, see Fiddler Roof as the, as the end-all and be-all. That was a very watered-down version. His books are available in English. Uh, they're not as funny in English as Yiddish, but what can you do? It's better than not reading him at all. So you have Shalom Aleichem. And I'll use Shalom Aleichem for a reason I'm using him, because Shalom Aleichem actually has the experience of many of your ancestors he comes to the United States, right, from Tsarist Russia. And in the United States, he has a character he develops called Mutl Pesa the Chazans, Mutl Pesa the Cantor's son. And he creates a character that reflects what a new immigrant sees when he comes to this country. And it's a very much that all immigrants become childlike. There's something about moving at a certain age and you become a child again. Things are new, things are different, you feel helpless, you feel like you're not sure where you're going. And this character was wonderful, and he wrote, and he began already in 1910, 1911, he began, because of his great ear, he began recording a new kind of Yiddish that was being spoken called Yinglish, where Yiddish was being diluted by all the new languages that people were encountering. So you have words like, mach offen de winde. But a vinda is not a vinda. It's a vinda here. But in Yiddish, it's a fenster. Machof ma fenster. Became machof in the vinda. Right? The Rebbe ot gemuft. You took the word move and you make it into a Yiddish word. Gemuft, right? So he caught all that. It was really great. And unfortunately, he died fairly young in 1916. But the day of his funeral, I don't know if you're familiar with this, 100,000 people followed his hearse because he really was a spokesman for the everyday person. 100,000. You read the New York Times from that period, it's amazing. They write about this fellow. And of course, one of the times he was in the States, he met a fellow who, right at the end of his life, named Mark Twain. Ever hear of that, Mark Twain? The only funny person in the 19th century in the United States was Mark Twain. <laughs> Not funny, anybody else was funny in the United States at that time. And Mark Twain said to him, I've been told that I have the uh, Jewish, the, the Gentile Sholem Aleichem. And he says, that's funny, because I've been told I'm the Jewish Mark Twain. It was very nice. A very nice exchange that they had. So he dies, and by this time, we have an immigrant community here. So I'm already down. I'm here already, beginning of the 20th century. Right? Seems a very long time ago. And in the transience between Eastern Europe and the United States, we begin to see that the Eastern European Jews bring with them their traditions. And part of what we try to do in our book is show the fact that we have continuity, not discontinuity. That the... Uh, the uh, the, the, the wise men of Helm and the Marx brothers would have enjoyed it. Who were the wise men of Helm? Anybody know? You ever heard the Helm stories? 
right? Helm stories, by the way, are not jokes about people who are stupid. Helm stories are parodies of rabbis who think they're smart. Because there was a very strong anti-rabbinic thing going on all through the 19th century. So what was the problem with rabbis? The rabbis can deliberate day and night, seven days, seven nights, until they come up with a solution. The solution is always wrong. <laughs> That's what rabbinic casuistry or rabbinic pilpul, it was called, was all about. So we see a transition. People are bringing stuff from the old country. They're bringing something brand new a little bit that started in 1884, the first one. And that's Yiddish theater. There's a guy called Avram Goldfaden. And I'll finish a few minutes and we'll open up for discussion. But Avram Goldfaden starts the first Yiddish theater. And it becomes very successful. It travels all through Europe. And pretty soon you have Yiddish theater in the States. And you have two kinds. You have one kind is very sophisticated. They're doing Shakespeare in Yiddish. Right, Tomaszewski, the great uh, Til Tilson Thomas's grandfather was Boris Tomaszewski, a great Yiddish actor, and he would <laughs> put on King Lear, right? King Lear, and at the end he would say, verteicht und verbessert, <laughs> translated and improved. Right, that's how they thought about it, and improved. So, uh, so uh, the Yiddish theater comes, and you have that more sophisticated theater, influenced by the Russian realists, and by Gogol and Chekhov, but then you have a stuff called Schund, street humor. And the people in that world really were really influenced by what was going on in burlesque and vaudeville, all the stuff that was going around them. But we began to see the emergence of a new kind of a, of a Jewish humor that will, within 20 or 30 years, become identified with American urban humor. And a good example of who really brings this about is, uh, I'll use uh, some characters you all know, because there are a lot of minor characters that we no longer remember, but you may have heard of the Marx Brothers. Okay, not everybody does. The young kids today, I say Marx Brothers, and they aren't sure what I'm talking about. And I send them back and I say, you know, watch some of these films. I think you might even enjoy, enjoy them. But they're in black and white. I say, wear sunglasses, <laughs> wear, wear rose-colored glasses, get off or get over it, right? Uh, so the Marx Brothers are a really good example of a transitional group. They, I think Groucho himself, Julius, was born in Europe, comes over as a young child. They live in rather poor conditions, as many of the immigrants did. But they understood something about the fact that there was a way to maybe make it out. And one of the ways was to have talent. Irving Berlin, another good, good, good example. What can you do to package yourself to a, to a largely non-Jewish world, all right? outside of my tenement? outside of my ghetto. And if you look at the characters that emerged with the Marx Brothers, you really see, if I can be so bold, a short history of the transition to, from Jewish to what we would call contemporary urban humor. Look at the characters. Marx himself, Groucho, who's probably the most well-known. Groucho was a parody of a gentleman. Right? He was a parody of a gentleman. He was a parody of what Protestant society understood that a gentleman was, right? Tails, right? But his tails were always a little bit too long. His jacket was always a little too short. And he had the cigar, right? And he was always making fun of the Protestant establishment. Who was that? Margaret Dumont. She was the Chrysler building, basically. <laughs> right? And I don't know if you're anything read about, uh, about the woman who played Margaret, Margaret Dumont. She never really understood any of the stuff that was going on. But he said, don't worry, your job is to stand there and just nod. And she did a very good job at that. So you have Groucho, who's the parody of what, of what a gentleman is, because ultimately Jews knew that they would never break into that Protestant establishment. 
By the way, you know, if our ancestors could become vice presidents of Chase Manhattan Bank, they wouldn't have gone into films. They wouldn't have gone into dangerous businesses. They wouldn't have gone into stuff that you can't be sure of, right? But we were not allowed to. We were out of that. We had to take risky stuff. Show business is by its very nature risky. You never know. A hit or a flop, you never know. So Groucho was that, if you will, that representation of the fellow who understood where things could be, but he's not going to be able to do it because he's still a schlepper. Still a schlepper. Then you have Chick Chico. Chico's very interesting. Chico is more wary of the American scene. He's not going to be a parody of a gentleman. He'll keep his Italian clothes. He'll keep his accent. He knows there's still some value in what was there before. And he's a bit nostalgic, etc., for that time. And he's very bright. And he's often funnier and smarter than Groucho. So he's sort of not a, a total assimilated kind of figure. He wants to sort of live in both worlds. And then, of course, you've got one of my fav favorites, Harpo. Harpo is the quintessential immigrant. He becomes a child again. He not only doesn't have an opportunity to speak English, he can't speak. He comes to America like many of our ancestors, and they say in Yiddish there's an effen. And that's how he always stays. And what does he learn about America real quick? That America, if you want something, you got to take it. You like silverware? You take it. <laughs> you want a blonde? You chase it. And he realized real quick that that's the way one gets ahead in this country is by grabbing whatever you can at any time and not caring whose it is. And that's true a lot about what goes on in the banking business today. But I won't take any of that. <laughs> so the Marx Brothers remarkably go from, in 1912 or 14, performing for Jewish audiences on the Lower East Side, to 1923 being on Broadway. Amazing. On Broadway, Fanny Bryce is another good example, right? Who doing, he's doing, she's doing a Yiddish accent, and she's in the Follies. There was something about these people that made general society accept them. And what was that? And I mentioned it earlier. It was marginality. The person on the margins traditionally was given a bit of credit when it came to humor because that person saw what the person in the middle didn't see. They, the people in the middle don't see the forest because of the trees. The person on the outside is given credibility because the person on the outside has perspective that the person inside does not have. And when that perspective does what good humor does, oh, I see. <laughs> if you have a good sense of humor, you laugh. A bad sense of humor, there's nothing we can do for you. <laughs> Ultimately, it's terminal, a bad sense of humor, I think. So this is a good example of what happened. And then by the 1930s, I'm going I'm to miss uh, the Jewish mother jokes. I don't have time for that, but the, just give you a little hint. If you ask me later, I'll, I'll tell you. But, uh, but it's a whole thing. I, it, it's, there's so much to talk about. And then by the time the Jews are moving into what we call the second settlement, no more the Lower East Sides, wherever they came, Philadelphia or Chicago, but they're moving into those next neighborhoods, right? In, our, in, in New York, it was the Bronx. Moved to Grand Concourse, you were, right? You had made it, right? You moved to Brooklyn, certain areas. In, uh, someone told me in Chicago, it was when you moved to West Rogers Park. Or some other area. I don't know how it is here in Colorado. You never had an east side here in Orange <laughs> County. Was there an east side in Orange County where the immigrants came? What? There weren't any Jews. So nobody was selling he 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 herring from a push cart. 
There was never any, right, right. So what happens is, is you get the second generation, and this second generation is now more Americanized. They have rejected Yiddish for the most part, even though they know Yiddish. And they're living in a time when there's a beginning, if you will, in the 1930s, of, I mean, compared to Eastern Europe and, and Western Europe, nothing. But there was a little anti-Semitism that was still surface. See, that's the period people changed names. The Rabinowitzes became the Rabs. The, the Goldsteins became the Garrisons and all that kind of stuff. But there was still a need to become assimilated. That was really the would do it. However, it slowed down a little bit because of the anti-Semitism. It's unfortunately, anti-Semitism on the one hand accelerates it. The other hand, slows it down. It's very fascinating because some people, they need the anti-Semitism to somehow to realize, yeah, I'm Jewish, and I'm going to react by being proud of it. It's interesting. It's a different kind of reaction. Some react by trying to hide, and others react by being more proud. So we became slightly lower middle class, a little middle class, and we could finally afford things that we could never afford before. And the most important thing it was for people in New York particularly was they could get two weeks off a year and go to the mountains. These really aren't mountain mountains, the Catskills, they're hills. <laughs> but for a Jew, a hill is a mountain. It's true. You see a hill, you go, poof, it's a hill. Would I want to walk that hill? No, it's a mountain. I wouldn't want to walk that What am I, a mountain, mountain climber? It's a hill. So these Jews would go to the Borschbelt, they're called, right? The famous hotels in the Catskills. And there, an entire new breed of Jewish humor begins to emerge, which were all the... Uh, all, all of us are beneficiaries of it in one way or the other. Uh, and what the basic premise of the Borscht Belt was, I've got two weeks, I'm going to be in a hotel, and I want you to feed me a lot, a lot. <laughs> there are people who had pipes of food just going one way and pipes going the other way, if you know what I mean. They, really, they didn't want to move. <laughs> I still remember, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when you went and you ordered every main course. <laughs> remember those things at all? Any of you remember this at all? They would bring you a menu and there would be five main courses. You say, I'll have them all. <laughs> Fine. They brought it to the table. That was it. Unbelievable, right? So people would like coronaries and, and ambulances up and down. It was amazing. <laughs> it's a whole story. That was one on Saturday night. It was fun. You know, watch the carries, people carried out. So the difference between a Borschtbelt hotel and a comedy club today is remarkable. In a comedy club today, they bring you a new audience every two hours. You do a 20-minute act. If you're a, not a primary guy, you do a 45-minute if you're a star. And guess what? You do your bit, they bring in another audience, you do the same bit. That's what it is. The Borscht Belt, you had the same audience for two weeks. <laughs> right? That's, that's tough. Right? So you read the, I read the stories of Mel Brooks and, you know, and Sid Caesar and all those guys, and they really, really, really became the wonderful comedians they were because of this training camp, boot camp. Right? You come out the first night, you bring your best stuff, everybody's enjoying it. Your second night, you got a little more, you dance with their daughters, you work with Simon Says at the pool, you, you call a tumbler, right? You got a tumble with everybody. You're a social director, make everybody happy. The third night, you got a little bit more material. By the fourth night, you've got nothing. <laughs> what are you going to do? You've already did everything you could for the first three nights, and then God forbid the fourth night it rains. Then you got an angry crew on your hands. <laughs> People, you know, frothing at the mouth, and raining. <laughs> Give me another brisket, please. That's a way to solve it. <laughs> yeah, I'll take a double. Yeah. So 
by the fourth night, I was reading a, a, a biography of Carl Reiner, Carl Reiner and Sid Caesar, if you know, one of the really remarkable teams of all time. Many of you do not remember the show of shows. Even I don't. I, I was very young, but I have watched tapes, and etc. This was SNL, 10 times better than SNL is today. It was live. It was fantastic. So by the fourth night, Carl Reiner says that in one of the clubs they're in, one of the hotels they're in, they, they were like bereft. They didn't know what the bereft should be a Yiddish word, by the way. Bereft should be, right? I am bereft. I am bereft. Like, 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 uh, like oyster cracker. Oyster cracker. No, 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 no. All right. Or seminal vesicle. Seminal vesicle should be a Yiddish word. Right? Ladles, mental, dental. You know, that's a... Boxkite. You have that in the book, right? <laughs> so they say, what should we do? So they're not sure what to do. They're worried. Oh, God, they're going to kill us. It rained today. They, they're going to eat us up. It's going to be terrible. So he says to Sid Caesar, let's do Rigoletto. He says, Rigoletto? They don't know Rigoletto. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we don't. So they went out. And if you remember, Sid Caesar, he had this wonderful way of talking every language in the world, right? It was all gibberish. But he had the great accents, right? So that night they went out and they did a couple of arias. And people are applauding, <laughs> right? And, that's, and they began to do all that. They had, the idea of improvisation, the idea of having to do stuff, there was no place like it. And the people who worked there for 10 years or so, let's say between 1938 <laughs> and 1948, they literally changed American humor totally with the advent of television. And from 1948 until 1968, some of you are... Some of you may have actually seen the Ed Sullivan show at one time, or at least heard about it, right? <laughs> right? You've all heard about it, right? It was the only, it was, a, I want you to tell you, I'll explain to you folks. This was a time when a family had one television in the house. And whatever it was, the reason we had children was because there was no remote control. That's the only reason <laughs> we would have children, right? Your father would say, quick, turn it, right? That's the only reason. <laughs> Planned Parenthood was always telling us, right? Are yeah, you familiar with that? <laughs> and not only that, I tell this to, some, to my young audience. I speak, speak, I speak to college students. I want you to know this is going to be hard to believe, but everybody actually sat in the same room <laughs> and watched television together. I'm not saying they talked to each other. I, I, I don't want to get, I don't romanticize this, but everybody actually sat And Sullivan, what Sullivan's talent was, that he had a little bit for everybody. He could go from Topo Gigio to, you know, uh, to the uh, opera. He had it all. And I had a, a constant flow every week of these Eastern European-bred Jewish comedians. However, they were Jews who were comedians. They were not Jewish comedians. They were kosher style, but not kosher. Their delivery was the urban wit of the Marx Brothers. They did word plays. They did all the... But the content was never Jewish. What made it Jewish was how they told the story. Myron Cohen didn't have to tell a Jewish joke, right? But Myron Cohen could tell any joke because these guys had tremendous timing, tremendous ways of deliver, delivering material, and they each had their own unique personalities. So you didn't, never got tired. You know, Jack Carter was not the same as uh, Alan King, right? They had different ways of presenting it. So from 1948 to 1968, there's an ultimate hegemony, if I can use that term, of Jews, mostly male, by the way. There were a few fee female. They were called red-hot mamas, the fee females. They were invariably women, girthy women, gesunte women, gesunte, really gesunte women. 
Sophie T Tucker. Remember Sophie Tucker? Kananahara, Sophie Tucker. Uh, uh, Bell Barth. Those are the records that the parents kept. Right, right, right. All the, compared to today, she could have worked in, in, this, in, in a church compared to what's going on today, right? And this is the records your parents put, put away so that you shouldn't hear them. And then you had Toadie Fields. Anyone remember Toadie? No, it's a different one. Right, but very much in that position, that kind of thing. And then Roseanne Barr was another example of that. And some say Joan Rivers in her own way uh, completes that. But between 1948 and 1968, you had very few women comedians. Phyllis Diller, right, a little bit. She did it by self-deprecation. That was the way she was able to carry it off, right, by self-deprecation. But for the most part, you're talking about the vast majority are men. They're appearing on television, and they're literally creating American humor. And American humor and Jewish humor at that point begin to be, if you will, totally together at one time. The way black-motivated jazz became American jazz. Right? We don't longer no talk about black jazz. We talk about American jazz. So this was our major contribution. We didn't contribute a Talmud, but we contributed a lot to creating our culture as it is today. And since 68, uh, we're noticing a lot of changes. I'll bring it up. I have five more minutes before I open up for questions. I just want to bring us up to where we are. We saw a breakthrough in the 60s, and that was, first of all, Gentiles. We allowed Gentiles to speak and make jokes. <laughs> They had to get permission. By the way, you know the best Gentile joke there is. You know this one. Uh, Mrs. Wadsworth calls her son Timothy. Tim, Tim, uh, you know, Dad and I are celebrating our 50th next week, and we're having the folks over and other friends and our closest friends, and, and uh, we're going to have Yorkshire pudding. You always love Yorkshire pudding. And we're going to have a roast rack of lamb. You always love that. Uh, and we'd love to have you come over and be pleased. We'd love to see you. And Timothy says, oh, I can't go. And she says, okay. So we see a rise of, a rise of tremendous talent. talent. <coughs> tremendous talent. We have, uh, we have Bill Cosby, you know, uh, Richard Pryor, George Carlin, and we can go on and on. It was an opening up. Humor exploded. Women comedians coming in, tremendous amount of them, and uh, no longer was it, was it seen as a, a totally male club anymore. No longer was it just a white Jewish club. It was now going to be African Americans. It was going to be uh, all kinds of people come to the fore. There's something about that period that allows the people who have only performed in their ethnic groups to come out and perform for a large, larger audience, whether it was redneck humor or whether it was southern black humor, whatever it was. It was all of a sudden, it was part of that multiculturalism that began to be big, if you remember, the late 60s, early 70s. All of a sudden, it came out, and it was very successful, and it basically broke the hegemony of Jewish humor. So everybody thought that when we put this book together, Bill and I, uh, we thought we were really, in a sense, doing an epitaph for Jewish humor that was over. Because at that time, we were writing this book in the early 80s. You know, what was passing for Jewish humor were Jew jokes. Stereotypical stuff, every Jew is cheap, every Jewish mother's a shrew. It was, it was boring. Boring, boring, boring. Uh, but all of a sudden, Seinfeld came along. And that was a remarkable phenomenon that there were people watching Seinfeld in Iowa without subtitles. <laughs> Are you sure? 
But all of a sudden, there was a return to a time when Jewish urban wit never identified as Jews. Any time, by the way, anything overtly Jewish was in Seinfeld, it was in that anti-rabbinic uh, sort of cynical humor, right? Uh, the rabbi was a blabbermouth, the nervous moil. You don't want a nervous moil on a show, right? <laughs> a nervous moil. You know, he cuts the thumb by mistake. That was a terrible thing. Right? Or the, uh, what else did they have? You know, his, his parents heard that he was making out in Schindler's List. Stuff like that, you know? So, well, Festival of the Rest of them, you know, and certainly, uh, certainly Frank Constanza, which, which was this, everybody thought was Italian. It couldn't be more of a really uh, sort of uh, old-fashioned Jewish family. By the way, I met the Jerry Stiller a, a, a while back, and we, we sort of corresponded. We stayed friendly. So he said, uh, so I asked him, how did you get the part? He says, well, you know, I was 65 years old. I thought my career was gone. Ben hadn't even made it yet. Ben Stiller was sort of just making it. So somebody who knew me called me in, and they had two other guys who were going to play uh, George's father, and it did, didn't work out. And the original idea for George's father, which is like hard to believe now, was he was going to be a Casper milk toast, and the wife was going to be the one shrying all the time. So he decided to go counter and shry back. And they said, that's it. It works. And it worked. And he, here he was at 65, his career, and now with the Capital One commercials, I'll tell you, it's unbelievable. The guy's uh, he's 80 years old, Kananahara. And he's, uh, he's still selling the credit, credit cards. All right, better, I guess better uh, me than him, him than me, whatever. But whatever. So the Seinfeld show changed things. All of a sudden, we got back to a sort of an urban kind of wit. It was no longer had to be politically you know, hard-edged. It was more observational. It was talking about real life. And it was able for more and more people to relate to it. And then we began to see something else emerge, which all of you are very familiar with now, of course, is that, that we began to see uh, the emergence of Jews in, in uh, Mad Magazine, Harvard Lampoon, script writers, by the way, comedy scripts, Judd Apatow, all guys coming out of a Jewish ba ba background, no longer the Borscht Belt, no longer people born in New York, but people who bring a certain sense of ability, which you might think is not a great sensibility, whatever. They bring a sensibility. Sarah Silverman, John Stewart, and all of a sudden people who are more upfront about being Jewish. You see, this, this is what's very in interesting. Whereas the Jewish comedians, everybody knew they were Jewish. They changed their names, right? Pretty much, right? And they performed general material for everybody. Everybody watched The Sullivan Show. Jew, Gentile, didn't make a difference. They were going out there for a general audience. But now people like Sarah Silverman and John Stewart, they bring their Jewishness up all the time. No one asks them, by the way, because it's part of who they are. They're more comfortable. Maybe it's true about our kids in general, right? That they're more comfortable being who they are. Our country is no longer demanding of them to be somebody else to be accepted. You don't change your name today. As a matter of fact, if you have a weird name, it's okay. You know, Jaka Waka Watkinson, you could be okay. Instead of becoming Rock, you know, Rock Hudson, right? Or Rip Torn. What a great name, that Rip Torn. It could have been worse. Could have been zipper button. I don't know. Left foot. Yeah. So, so we're seeing now an emergence of, of a much more self-confident kind of thing with Jewish comedians who know something about being Jewish. And sometimes we find them more offensive because they really talk about who we really are. And there are actually some comedians that are doing really material for the Jewish community. They're doing community jokes. I don't know if you had them out here. It's very funny. Joel Chasnoff? 
He was great. He's terrific. But he's a guy who was working from inside the community, and he's very funny. You know, he's very funny, great delivery, etc. And there are more and more of those kinds of comedians coming up, or coming from inside the Jewish community, talking about what it is to be a Jew in the United States, what it is to be living in the Jewish community. And we're also seeing also people who are beginning to actually this is hard to believe, but in the Hasidic community, there are <laughs> there are films being done in Yiddish, comedy films to this day. And they're comedies where you see Hasidim playing detectives, and it's kind of funny, you know, it's kind of funny. But they, are, they don't think they're funny, but these are hilarious films. Uh, and, of course, uh, I don't have time to talk about it tonight, but we'll talk about it some other time, is what's gone on in Israel over the last 60 years, because Israel, too, is a very fascinating arc of what's happened there in comedy from, from, from the beginning of the state until, until today. So here's the bottom line, folks. Jewish humor is not dead, but like most things, it's in transformation. But one thing I am happy to see is that uh, people who get this book for their bar mitzvah (laughs) have their lives changed. (laughs) I think it's called, (laughs) don't wait for the film, as we say. But, but no, really, that, that we, it is, it is as important for us, I'll just stop here, it's as important for us to transmit to our children that laughter and joy and jokes and the capacity to use jokes as a vehicle for self-criticism is for me as important as any other, any other thing that you can give them. Because I don't think you can have a really truly Jewish education today and not be aware of the power of words, expressions, humor to open up the truths that hide between so much, behind so much of what we see in the world. Now, I'm not claiming humor can stop bullets. I'm not claiming humor can, you know, d- d- change our lives from the point of the anti-Semitism around us. But it does give us a capacity to have a wider perspective. And I think that's really the role. The role of humor is to say, your narrow perspective does not give you all that you can see. And a good humorist opens that perspective up. A good humorist, if you have a sense of humor, will say, wow, Look at that. I saw it. It was under my nose, but I never really saw it, and you're showing it to me. That's what I loved about George Carlin. He got a little dark at the end, George. Yeah, a little dark. It was a little hard. You, know, you wanted to commit suicide right after you went to the shows. But, but many, many people did. It was amazing. M- 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 MGA Grand, people jumping off the building. But they also lost money, so it was, I don't know what it was. Either Carlin or, you know, whatever. So, so I'm opening up for questions now. We did a lot of work tonight. I know you've been very patient. So if there are any questions, please, I'd love to hear them from you. And also, if you want to tell me who your favorite comedian is, I would love to hear who makes you laugh. It would be very nice for me to know, so I can talk about it to other people. Dick Gregory was great. Who? I said Dick Gregory was great. Dick Gregory was great. I would say he was my favorite comedian, because his timing was very different than Cosby, you know? And Bill Cosby's probably the funniest, cleanest, you will laugh your head off. I agree. I I think he was taking, yeah. I know. Rodney was fantastic too, absolutely. But, I, but, but you know, Cosby, just for a minute, you know, I, I used to joke when the show was on that he was getting back at uh, Al Joe Jolson, who used to do blackface, and he was doing Jew face. I mean, he was an a- average family. He was an obstetrician, and my wife was a lawyer. Your t- typical inner city family, there's no question about it. All the kids were going to Ivy League schools, you know, he was doing Jew, Jew face for six years. But he did well, he did well. But you're right, I think Cosby was, uh, he's a master because, again, only took his humor from real life. 
Never had to tell a joke, per se. You see? That's the power of that kind of humor. We had a guy like that, too, in the Jewish tradition, Sam Levinson. You guys don't remember Sam Levinson, do you? No, the young people don't. Same thing. He took his stories from, from life, from what went on, how he grew up. Right? Similar kind of approach. I don't, you know, it's very interesting how he, he did that. Buddy Hackett, on the other hand, remember Buddy Hackett? Oh, yeah. Buddy Hackett was the bastard child of Lenny Bruce and Sam Levinson. You know, he was, a, he was a schmaltzy, dirty comedian. You know, very schmaltzy and dirty at the same time. Yes, sir? Oh, I, I tell you, I, I love him because he's so miserable. Such a miserable son of a bitch. I love him. Because he clearly, he had, he had one season, as you know, where it was all Jewish all the time. Right? And he comes directly out of that, of that critical, anti-rabbinic 19th century stuff, you know, where rabbis could do no good. But he also had a tremendous sense of self-criticism in that show sometimes, too. But I'd love the one where he, he pretends to be an Orthodox Jew to get to this guy to get uh, a, a transplant, a kidney transplant for Richard Lewis. <laughs> you remember that one? Yeah, it was just a, I mean, scalping tickets. Well, scalping tickets is, is, is an old, old joke, but, 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 but still, it was just remarkable. And I, 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 I like it. I like it. But then I'm a masochist, too, so it doesn't matter. But uh, some people hate him, hate him because he's not... But I always say, look at the shows carefully. You'll see that ultimately he always gets hoisted on his own petard. Yeah. I have no idea what a petard is, but he always gets hoisted on it. So in the end, he always gets it, right? For all the trouble he makes, by the end of the show, he gets it. And that makes you feel a little bit better because he's such a miserable human being, you know? But the way in real life I hear is exactly that, that way. So he's not even acting. Yes? I was thinking about one of the people from that era that I think is still hilarious and a wonderful storyteller, but Completely white bread. Something like Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart. Oh. Yeah, he's, Where does he come from? And how does he Bob manage to, did is, he have, did yeah. he rub up against the Jewish? Well, only because he's Don Rickles' friend. Imagine. I mean, Don Rickles and Bob Newhart are the closest of friends. They do everything together. They travel together. They're they're, they're the closest there's buddies. Something about his timing and his whole sense. He of had uh, he, he he. I don't know how he got in there. That waspish thing. He got in there really terrific, and he just was a genius. He's a genius. Yeah. He was a guy who understood that underplaying is as strong as o o overplaying. Isn't that sort of a, underplaying, I wouldn't say. I think he was a little bit more, uh, a little more, more dramatic than, than, than Bob Newhart. You know, but I'm saying, uh, imagine that Don Rickles is, would, be the, would be the polar opposite of, 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 of Bob Newhart, and yet they're the best of buddies. Because you need to have someone who's not like you to really be, you know, be able to be like your friend. You know, they're exactly like you, there's no room. <laughs> for a new friendship. I, I mean from the standpoint of being the outsider. Like, you know, like you hear uh, yeah. him tell... He was an outsider in the comedy world. Well, like the stories right. he tell, like he talked, like the, I just heard one... The Empire State like, Building in King King exactly, Kong. Oh, right. that's a hell of a story. It's a beautiful yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's a, if you don't know the story, I'm not going to tell, tell it to you because Bob Newhart is still available now on CD and if you really want to hear somebody who's really a master, Bob Newhart. Yeah, thank you. He wasn't Jewish, but I'm glad you brought him up anyway. So what about Chris Rock? What about him? <laughs> huh? No. Well, you know, look, compared to what, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, what's his name? Compared to Eddie Murphy, again, he's a choir boy. I don't know if you remember old uh, Eddie Murphy. Yeah, but that was a good example. Eddie, Eddie Murphy uh, emerged uh, pretty much at the same time as, uh, as uh, Richard Pryor had brought. He basically became the, the heir to Richard Pryor and uh, did far better than Richard did because Richard was psychotic. But, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy was not. Red Fox, again, from, he was very big in the black community for many years before, like Mom's Baby, Mom's Ma Mabley. He had, he had, you know, his own circuit for years and years. It was only in the late 60s that it was okay to, you know, emerge from your ghetto 
and try to present something to the larger public and it would be acceptable. Remember, blacks were so, you know, what you see today in television, you young, young people among you, it was impossible. The only black guy in television was Nat King Cole. Because he had great hair, terrific hair. And he sang beautifully and he was just, he was an exception. You never saw a, a black performer really uh, on, t on television for a long, long time. Yes, sir. Well, this rabbi, it was just an observation that frequently I'll, I'll watch some of the old programs. You, okay. bet, you, uh, you bet your life. Oh, or, you bet your life. Don Rickles, or at least I've watched these Jewish comedians just, right. just use their wit and they're right. not reading from scripts. And their wit is just amazing. And the, and the one liners, and they're right. just they're thinking on their feet all the time. But then you see the comedians these days where. They have an act, and if, if you ever see those same comedians being interviewed, they don't have that. Right. They're, right. they're just not quick. They're right. just, they can't really work off the script as right. well as. Also, I noticed with the current comedians, there seems to be such a low, a low comma denom denominator that they want to get to real quick because they don't know who their audience is. See, you have another audience coming in every two hours. The guys in the Catskills knew who their audience was. They could appeal to who the people were. But if I don't know if, if, if the group coming in in two hours has ever heard of the New York Times, let alone read it, right? So what do you do? You go to the lowest common denominator, high school, drugs, and sex. Because you have a strange feeling that might have, everybody could actually relate to that. But it leaves it pretty much very low. It doesn't get, there are very few political comedians, you know. I, I like Jon Stewart, you know. He only does well with a very selected group. You know, with a selected group, he's not, He's not getting, uh, you know, watched by millions. Go on, please. You want to say something? Was he, was he like Mortzal? Uh, much more funny than Mortzal ever was. Which leads me to my question. Why yeah. don't we have that level of comedic talent? Different industry. It's a different industry now. They get up and they perform for 20 minutes. Oh, we do. And then they go back down. It's kind of, I think it goes back to that kind of harsh felt thing. The repartee and the yeah. style. I mean, John Stewart is doing 22 two minutes a night, you know. It's very hard. Yeah. It's also the idea of the medium. People are still saying, you know, there's, oh, you know, whether television is still a very cool medium and uh, whether it has the capacity to really take the place of a, of a live performance. By the way, just before I forget, somebody who I, I should have mentioned, that I should, who I love, adore, and I think is a quintessential example of everything that I've said and is Billy Crystal. Because he understands where he came from. Remember that movie he did about the Borscht Belt guy? Where he played that guy, was it? Mr. Uh, Saturday night. What a movie. Unbelievable, right? This guy knows where he came from. And anybody saw the show he did? Anybody? 700 Sundays? Unbelievable. Uh, I hope they filmed it and put it on, you know, because I, the reason I love that show so much was here was a guy talking about growing up Jewish in Far Rockaway, and he didn't have to go to any stereotype. It was okay for him to love his mother. She didn't have to be some shrew. You didn't have to go to the stereotype about Jews being cheap and Jews being this and that. And it was refreshing, you know, that he could talk about his life in a very, very wonderful way. And uh, he's just a brilliant performer. I remember him on Saturday Night Live, with the, what he did, you know, uh, just brilliant, brilliant performer. And he's a good example of somebody who comes out of that tradition and has made that tradition very, very strong. And very few are going to be at that l l level. Robin Williams wants to be Jewish. You know that. He said he's been, he says he's been in Hollywood so long he thinks his foreskin has fallen off. He really <laughs> and he, of course, he and Billy Crystal and Whoopi Goldberg, no? Whoopi Goldberg, what could be you know? So, you know, even Whoopi Goldberg knew that by, that if you want to link in, you've got to be in the Jewish tradition. Whoopi, yeah, Whoopi, Whoopi, Robin, and Billy are a team. You know, they right. did the comic aid and all that stuff. Yes, somebody there? Yes, please, Lou. Uh, 
the first one I've seen you perform since 1969, and you haven't mentioned Jackie Mason. Right. What? Yeah. Jackie Mason? Hey. Hey. When I grew up with Lou in Brooklyn, everybody we knew talked like Jackie Mason. There was nobody, <laughs> right? Nobody didn't talk like Jackie Mason. Right? So I improved my English, and he's making a million dollars. So he's, he's gotten to be, uh, he, he, he is basically, what he took was one joke. He has one joke. That's all. Jewish, Jewish. But let me give you a little bit of somebody who did it earlier before him. A guy named Lenny Bruce. You ever hear of him? This is interesting. No, I'm telling you, schmutz, I mean, have you, been, have you ever seen Def Jam comedy? You to be schmutz. It's, it's unbelievable. He, he did a piece here, I'll tell you. This is a beautiful piece he did, which opened up the whole genre, right? And, and you'll see that uh, compared to today, as I say, he, he could be up for sainthood. He says, dig. He was cool cat at that time. Dig. I'm Jewish. Count Basie's Jewish. Ray Charles is Jewish. Eddie Cantor's Goyish. B'nai Brith is Goyish. Hadassah, Jewish. If you live in New York or any other big city, you're Jewish. It doesn't matter even if you're Catholic. If you live in New York, you're Jewish. If you live in Butte, Montana, you're going to be Goyish even if you're Jewish. <laughs> Kool-Aid is Goyish. Evaporated milk is Goyish, even though the Jews invented it. Chocolate is Jewish and fudge is Goyish. Fruit salad is Jewish. Lime jello, Goyish. Lime soda, very Goyish. All Drake's cakes are Goyish. Things have changed. Now Drake's cakes are more Jewish. Pumpernickel is Jewish, and as you know, white bread is very Goyish. He was the first guy to really do this back in the early 50s. Instant potatoes, Goyish. Black cherry soda, very Jewish. And macaroons, very Jewish cake. Negroes are all Jews. Italians are all Jews. Irishmen who have rejected their religion are Jews. Mouths are very Jewish. And bosoms, very Jewish. Baton twirling, very Goyish. Underwear, definitely Goyish. Balls are Goyish, but titties are Jewish. Celebrate is a Goyish word. Observe is a Jewish word. Mr. and Mrs. Walsh are celebrating Christmas with Major Thomas Moreland, U.S. Air Force retired, while Mr. and Mrs. Bromberg observed Hanukkah with Goldie and Arthur Schindler from Kayamisha, New York. So this Jewish Goyish thing, and Mason did it very, very well. His timing was terrific. But in recent years, I've just gotten to a place where he, He's sort of uh, become sort of a mouthpiece for a very right-wing uh, political thing, and he spends half of his act just, you know, hammering. Uh, first was Clinton. He really hammered Clinton for a while. Reagan, he gave a little bit of trouble to. You know, remember Reagan? He said, he said Reagan. He always said, "It's not my field. I don't do it. It's not my field." You know, it was funny for a while, and he hasn't really done much recently, uh, J J Jackie. But you're right, Lou. We used to like Jackie. Remember Jackie? Uh, we we knew him when Jackie was a, a, a rabbi's son. Uh, and uh, he sort of uh, always claimed that he was held back because he was too Jewish. That was his big claim. You remember he got thrown off the Ed Sullivan show? You guys don't know anything, but whatever. <laughs> Ed Sullivan claimed, claimed that Mason gave him the finger. Flipped him the bird. Flipped him the bird, right, if you want to be kind of like Carol Burnett, very talented. I liked uh, Har Har Harvey Corman, a Jew. Tim Conway, not a Jew. And almost you, right? No, no, uh, look, I mean, you're talking about a, a classic, yeah, that's no question about it. But, uh, but from a, uh, from a, uh, trying to think who would be the equivalent uh, for, uh, as a Jewish performer, there are very few. Well, again, it was not, not yet, yeah. But we, we make them after the, like the Mormons do, after they die, we convert them. 
So Mormons do that to everybody. Your Zadie is now a Mormon, and your Zadie is now a Mormon. My Zadie didn't know what a Mormon was, basically. You know. Yeah. Anybody else? Favorite comedian? Yes, sir. Who else? Uh, Mel Brooks of 2000. Oh, Mel Brooks, you can talk. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. But you know, there was a genre of overtly Jewish comedians. Absolutely, absolutely. Against absolutely. What you were talking about. Thank you. I, exactly, not, exactly. Shelley Berman. Shelley Berman really was a fascinating. He, he never did anything explicitly Jewish, but his Jewishness was there. And I, give me an example. Shelley Berman was a great example of the generational gap that began. Because I remember watching him at first on the Sullivan Show and later on in other things. He's still around playing Larry David's father, by the way, yeah. Yeah. Shelley, right? Um, and he had this act, remember, where he would be talking on the telephone. He would sit on a, on a stool with his legs crossed and he would be talking to the telephone. And he would sometimes get very maudlin <coughs> and would cry and stuff like that. And my father would say, what's vain there, Doc? He's supposed to be a comedian. What's he crying over there for, right? And I said, Dad, it's a different kind of comedy today. It's no longer the guys getting up and doing joke, joke. Because Shelley Berman did do jokes. He did stories. Story tells. Very different. But you're right. Mel Brooks is a good example. Carl Reiner is certainly the show of shows. I mentioned the show of shows. I should have mentioned, of course, uh, the two 2,000-year-old man, which began as a pri at private parties. Uh, it never really became popular until uh, he was asked by his friends to put it out as an album, and then they did it again, and it's, been, it's still around, by the way. Hilarious stuff, very funny stuff. And uh, thank God he's still alive, and Carl Reiner is still alive. And I hear they sit on the couch together, and they watch TV. They both lost their wives. So uh, they hang. It's great to know they can still hang out together, you know? And I wonder if they speak in accents to each other. Because the, the, the idea was the older you would get, you would begin speaking with a Yiddish accent, no matter... How, where, what your accent was, you know? <laughs> like Bob Dylan, very soon as he'd be talking, uh, blowing in the wind. <laughs> I wish I was blowing in the wind. I wish I was blowing anything at this point. <laughs> Anybody else? Could be, are you okay time? One, uh, one last, a young person. Yeah, I just want to know what you think about South Park. Uh, brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. One of them is a Jew, the guy who writes it, you know. Really? Which one? I think Stone. Stone. Not Stone. But uh, I love the stuff they do with the little Jewish kid. I love him. It's <laughs> but it's such a brilliant show. And the, a lot of people don't like it because it's uh, awkward. It's an awkward show. But you know what? That's I think, is the best humor there is is humor that can make you uncomfortable. I, I don't think humor should be a, a placebo you know, or a panacea for everything. It's not. It's like the prophets of old, right? The prophets wanted to make the comfortable uncomfortable. And a good comedian makes the comfortable uncomfortable. I love their movie. The full-end movie was knockout. Did you see Book of Mormon? Not yet. I, 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 but it's supposed to be good, I hear. It's supposed to be very good. It's supposed to be very good. I got a lot of Tony Award nominations, whatever that means. My friends, thank you. Shabbat shalom.